How you doing today? You're looking marvelous. You are looking marvelous. Best looking church in the Twin Cities for sure. No doubt. Humblest too. Absolutely. Smartest, best looking, and humblest. That's all we claim. I'm barefoot because last service I got really hot. I was all sweaty. And then somebody said, you know, if you take off your socks, uh, it's cooler. And they were right. It really cools you down having... <laughs> so the people in the front row will be slain in the spirit. <laughs> Boosh! Bam! <laughs> all right. Uh, my, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor at, here at Woodland Hills Church. And it's really good to see all of you. If you're visiting for the first time at this weekend event, um, we're really glad that you're here. Once a year, I mean, all, all year long, we have people who kind of see that they need to be baptized. And so we, small groups baptize folks in their small groups and things like that. Uh, but once a year, we have a service for everybody who wants to be baptized at the service. And so this time it'll be on July 20th. That's next Sunday after this, this service, starting at, I think, 1 o'clock, we said. Is that right? 1 o'clock? It's in the bulletin. Um, and really encourage everyone to come out and be a part of this because it's beautiful. We also invite everyone to be baptized who hasn't been baptized, at least not as an adult. To help in that process, uh, I'm going to do a little mini-sermon on baptism. I'm going to have a mini-sermon and then a mega-sermon. The mega-sermon will come later. First will come a five-minute mini-sermon on baptism. And this is why we think it's an important deal. Four things I'd say about what the Bible says about baptism. First, Baptism in the New Testament is our initiation ceremony into the New Covenant. In the Bible, uh, all relationships are done out of, in, in a covenant where there's a pledge and a commitment. And uh, uh, the, the, they all in, uh, have a ceremony that starts the covenant. When you enter into a new relationship, there's some kind of ceremony to commemorate the fact that you're embarking on this journey. Well, in the New Covenant or in the New Testament with our new relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, there's this ceremony that initiates you into that, and that is baptism. Baptism is to the kingdom walk what a wedding is to a marriage. It's, it's where you officially start this walk. Secondly, baptism is the public declaration of our pledge to Christ and to his kingdom. Um, God is a communal God. Everything's done in community. It's not an individualistic God. He loves individuals, but he does everything in community. And so these, these initiation ceremonies are done in community. It's a public declaration. And so baptism is to be a public event where there's witnesses. Witnesses are always important to, to, to the carving out of a new covenant. And so here you publicly declare to the body of Christ and to the world that you are now going to identify with Jesus Christ. You're going to be identified with his death and with his resurrection, which leads to my third point. Baptism symbolizes our participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this you get out of uh, Romans chapter 6. Uh, when a person goes down into the water, they are saying, I identify with Jesus going down into the earth. I identify with his death. My old self, my old self-centered way of living is being crucified and dead, killed. And now as you come up out of the water, you're saying, I identify with resurrection life that Jesus has, has given to me. And I'm going to walk now in a Christ-centered new way of living. So it symbolizes our identification with his death and resurrection. That's why we believe the immersion aspect of baptism is so important. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, and it literally means to dip or to dunk, to immerse. And so baptism, by definition, is done in immersion. And see, that the, the, the symbolism is all about going under and coming up out, identifying with his death and identifying with his resurrection. 
As it functions in Romans 6, you can see baptism is sort of, it's sort of, a, the, sort of a, the tombstone for the death of the old self and the birth certificate for the life of the new self. Uh, that's why Paul in Romans 6, the, the Romans are getting a little screwed up about their identity in Christ. They forgot who they were. And so Paul says, don't you remember your baptism? You were buried with Christ in baptism. You were resurrected with Christ in your baptism. So your, your old self is dead and you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Baptism is our ongoing reminder of our identity in Christ. The old self is dead. I'm now walking in resurrected life. Now, if you, the fact that you have a tombstone doesn't make you dead. And the fact that you have a birth certificate doesn't make you birthed. But if you were birthed and are alive, you should have a birth certificate. And if you're dead, you ought to have a tombstone. That's pretty profound, don't you think? And in the same way, baptism, our birth certificate and tombstone, it doesn't make you saved or unsaved. There's nothing magical about it. But it, it ought to be there. It's part of the, the plan of salvation uh, that God has for us. And in fact, and this leads to my fourth point, it is commanded in the Bible. It's not a little ornament, not an optional suggestion, not a nice Christian thing you should do. It really is commanded. And the first Christian sermon ever preached when the, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out, uh, Peter stands up. The people are convicted. They go, what should we do? Peter says, repent, which means turn around and be baptized. They're both in the imperative. And you find that throughout the book of Acts. As soon as, as, soon as a person turns to God, they have a public ceremony to express their initiation into this new covenant, and that is baptism. And so we really encourage people to uh, pray about and, and think about and study uh, this, this teaching on, on adult baptism by immersion. Some folks, understandably, are resistant because they, they, they say, well, look, at it. I was baptized as an infant. And if I get baptized as an adult, that invalidates my infant baptism or it kind of insults my infant baptism. It's going to insult my parents, uh, you know, and, and they have reservations about that. And I, I want to I encourage you to think about it in a little different way. In most cultures throughout history, you didn't choose who you were going to get married to. It, 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 it was arranged for you uh, early on in your life. Your parents pledged you to be betrothed to somebody. But even in those cultures, there came a time where you have a wedding ceremony where you own the pledge of your parents. So also, baptism is our betrothal to Christ. It's a ceremony, it's our wedding to Christ. And you can see infant baptism as, as your parents pledging that for you. Yes, you, they, they, they with very meaningfully and significantly and sincerely dedicated you to the Lord. But there comes a time where you as an adult now, now, you didn't have a choice then, but you have a choice now to own that for yourself. And so I encourage you to really pray about having this, this, uh, uh, this ordinance, this sacrament of baptism applied to your life whereby you own it for yourself. Okay, that's not what I'm here to preach on today, however. Just think about that. There's more information about it in the bulletin. You can sign up in the, by the community area if you want to take the class to learn more. It doesn't mean that you're saying, I will be baptized, but it just means you want to, you want to learn more about it. Uh, so just go there. But what I want to preach about this morning is let God be glorified. Let God be glorified. And we're actually going to start by looking at the same text that we looked at last week. I felt like God just hit us between the eyes last week in a powerful way. And we're never in too much of a hurry around here. We just go through the Bible. It's, you know, boring methodology. Just go verse by verse. But when we come to something that we feel there's some nuggets there to chew on, we just stop for a while and hover. And so after four years, we're up to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. We're going to read these same passages last week. 
Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Uh, Roman emperors sometimes would just flex their muscle by slaughtering some people. Just remember who's in charge. Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? You think they got their due? God was punishing them? No. But I'll tell you this. Unless you repent, which means to turn, unless you turn and walk God's way, you too will all, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? God was giving it to them. They were being punished. I tell you, no. But I'll also tell you this. Unless you turn, walk, live God's way, you're all going to perish. When tragedy happens, people are inclined to think that God was punishing somebody, and Jesus refutes that theology and says, look, don't go there. Uh, just respond. And the way you respond to this event is by taking an inventory, not of their life, judging them, but rather just respond by taking an inventory of your life. Realizing and remembering how iffy and chancy life is, towers can fall on people at any time. Uh, in light of that, today, now, ask the question, have you turned towards God, really? Are you right with God? Five verses later, Jesus is in a synagogue and he comes upon a woman who has got a, uh, some kind of disease where she's bent over, probably scoliosis, and says this starting in verse 11, a woman was there in the synagogue who had been crippled by a spirit, apparently a demonic spirit, for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hand on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. You think everyone would be really happy about that, but not religious people, not if you broke a religious rule. So the Pharisees are ticked off. This is the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You just did a work. Jesus gets ticked off at them, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But in verse 16, he says, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan, not God, Satan, has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When tragedy happens, people think God is judging folks. Jesus refutes that theology and says, look at this world is oppressed by de demonic powers, and ultimately, this woman is afflicted because of that. And the only thing that matters is not judging her, but rather manifesting the character and power of God by bringing healing into her life, glorifying God by bringing healing into her life. And finally, then, in John chapter 9, another passage we looked at last week, it says, as Jesus was going along, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, A, this man, or B, his parents? Those are your two choices. Why was he born blind, A or B? Jesus says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But, and then he says, Alhina fenarotha ta erga tutheyu enauto. But literally, let the works of God be displayed in him. Uh, or let God be glorified in him. Now, a lot of translations insert the word, this happened so that, as we said last week. This happened so that the works of God would be glorified. But the, the phrase, this happened so that, is not in the Greek. That's why I, I gave you the Greek. 
And people supply that because they think Jesus was trying to give them the right reason why the guy was born blind. But what Jesus is really doing, I believe, I think the Greek, Greek, Greek reads fine, just as it is. What, what Jesus is saying is, wrong question. The only thing that matters is that God be glorified. So let God be glorified in him. And he glorifies God by bringing healing into this man's eyes. When tragedy happens, we're often inclined to go into our judgments and think people are being punished. Someone's being punished. But Jesus says, don't go there. The only thing that matters is that God is glorified. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium and every person who's listening uh, by podcasting or DVD or television or whatever. I pray, God, that you would open up all of our ears and open up all of our hearts to receive your word and all of its authority and power. And that comes from you, not from me. And Lord, I pray, we pray that this would be a word that would in fact glorify you, that would unleash the kingdom in our lives in ways that would glorify you and give us wisdom and build your kingdom that we might manifest your love, your character, and your power. I pray, Lord God, that folks hearing this would be made whole in the next hour in ways that maybe they never dreamed. Glorify yourself. Let God be glorified. Let God be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to give us a brief message, and then we're going to go into a time of healing, a time of prayer, and a time of worship. Three points I want to make out of the passages we read. Point number one. When tragedy happens, all of these passages are telling us to collapse all of our judgments. Collapse all of our judgments. As I said last week, it's the oldest pagan theology in the book. You go back as far as you want and pagan religion, and you'll find the mindset that if things are going bad, if tragedies are happening, it's because God or the gods are punishing you. You did something to deserve it. Theology is remarkably uh, persistent. And so in Jesus' day, when Pilate slaughters some people, people think, oh, they're being judged. And when a tower falls on some folks, people think, oh, well, God was giving it to them. And when a lady is bent over, they're thinking, well, God's judging her. She did something wrong. When a man is born blind, well, either he or his parents must have done something wrong. God is the disaster button-pushing God, as we said last week in this punishment thing. And see, if that is your mindset then one of two things will happen. You'll either say, well, God is just, and therefore the victims got what they deserve, so you blame the victims. Or you'll say, these victims didn't deserve this, they're no worse than other people, in which case God is not just. So you, either you end up judging God or you end up judging the victim. The whole book of Job, I submit to you, was written to refute that theology. I talk about that in my book, Is God to Blame? Uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, both cases, when God shows up, both, he chastises both parties, Job for judging God and Job's friends for judging Job. And all of these passages are in, the, in different ways saying, stop judging. Stop thinking you know something that you don't know. We have to always remember that we live in an, in an unfathomably complex war zone. The universe is incredibly complex where parts are interrelated in ways we can't fathom and what happens over on one end of the universe affects something that happens on the other end of the universe, which is why we can rarely know anything about why things happen the way they do. And then there's this spiritual war that's going on in the midst of it. That means, folks, that we've got a very, 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 very myopic view of reality, very narrow. We know next to nothing and even that is questionable. We really are very ignorant beings. We can know that if it wasn't for the fact that we were a rebellious race and wanted to push God out of the picture, 
uh, we wouldn't be having the tragedies and heartaches that we have now. We can know that this world right now is, is governed strongly by the God of this age, Satan, the principality and power of the air, who, according to 1 John 5, 19, controls the entire world. And so we can know that if it wasn't for the fact that this world was oppressed by demonic powers, we wouldn't have the tragedies and the illnesses and the sicknesses and the diseases and the natural disasters that have going on now because these principalities and powers affect the very fabric of creation. Even the laws of nature don't operate all the way that they're supposed to operate. The world is, the creation is groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God because right now things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We can know that. Ultimately, all these infirmities and things go back to this world being ruled by one who was never supposed to rule it, Satan. But beyond that, in terms of the particulars, we don't know squat. Everybody say squat. squat. That's what you don't know. <laughs> you don't know squat. Why, why did this person get healed, but this person never gets healed? Why did this person get sick in the first place, but the other person lives perfectly healthy? Why did this child die and that child didn't die? You know, why, why did this person come down with this cancer? That person didn't come. This little boy got healed. That person didn't. We don't know any of that. Why is one nation prospering and another one's not prospering? We think the gods are blessing one and the gods are punishing the other, but it's not that simple. Now, we know next to nothing. All we can know is that in this unfathomably complex war zone, crap happens. It just happens. It hits the fan, sprays everywhere, and once in a while you get hit. And that's all there is to be said about it. You can't trace it back to its original cause or anything like that. We don't know that stuff. Manure flies. It gets messy. C.S. Lewis was a famous Christian apologist who did a lot of thinking about the problem of evil and says a lot of good things in his books. But he was a bachelor up until his 60s and then fell in love and married this woman. And this woman then ends up dying of, of cancer three years later. And it's one thing to do the problem of evil from an objective academic perspective. It's another thing to have it happen to you. He writes about this in his book, uh, A Grief Observed. Observed. But in the uh, movie Shadowlands, which is written a biography of his life, and it's recorded elsewhere as, as well, he had a time where after she died, a few weeks later, he was at a dinner party in, at Oxford where he taught. And uh, a, a well-intentioned friend came up to him and, and tried to really give him some of the same theology he'd been giving all of his life about why evil happens and, and trying to comfort him, saying, well, you know, God's still on his throne and God knows what he's doing and there's a reason for everything. And, and C.S. Lewis said, shut up. Uh, it's just a bloody mess. That's all you can say about it. It's just a bloody mess. Don't say anything else. And see, he's, he's right. When a mess happens... When a mess happens, when the spouse of your dreams dies, when your child dies, when you come down with muscular dystrophy or have an accident and paralyze, when, when the mess happens, when the family breaks up, it, life happens, it throws your curveball. And all you can say about it is it's just a mess. And don't go into some judgmental thinking or theologizing or trying to scrutinize it. Why me? Why this? Why now? You, you can't go there. It's just a mess. You, you didn't script this, this wasn't in your daily planner, this wasn't God's perfect plan for your life, it's just a mess. No one writes into their perfect planner, when I'm 35, I'll come down with cancer. No one writes that I will, at the age of 43, uh, leave my family because I'm going to have a brain tumor. No one writes in their daily planner that I will die from an ordinary routine operation, but I'm going to die from We've had two people in our congregation die in the last year going through routine operations. No one plans for that, it's just a mess. It just happens, life happens. It wasn't in your daily planner, and, and it wasn't in God's daily planner. This wasn't God's perfect script for your life. It's a war zone. There's a lot of wills that affect what comes to pass other than God, God's. And when it happens, you just got to say, it's a mess. 
Now, of course, of course, the sovereign Lord of history is infinitely intelligent. So he anticipates every possible mess, the worst mess from all eternity. He, and he has a plan in place so that when the mess happens, he has something in place to bring good out of it, to redeem it, to use it to his advantage. He doesn't cause things. He doesn't cause messes for a purpose, but he, he brings purposes to the messes. And he's a genius at that. So yes, uh, he brings per good out of it. But it's still a mess. That doesn't take away the messiness of the mess. It brings hope to the mess, but it's still a mess. And sometimes when you're in the middle of the mess, you just got to say it's a mess. Job's friends actually got it right at first. Job went through this nightmare because of some stupid deal in the heavenlies that he never found out about because we don't know squat. But, and that's the point of the whole book. But the Job's friends, they sit with Job for a while and they shut up. Wisdom there, wisdom. They shut up. They don't say anything. They don't try to, to, to theologize it or anything. They just grieve with the guy. But then things get really messy, messiness to a new level, when Job starts to pop off against God. Well, now that was too much for the friends, so the friends start to pop off against uh, uh, Job. And so you got Job judging God and friends judging Job, and the merry-go-round goes round and round. And when God shows up, he says, look, what do you guys know about creation? And what do you guys know about the war zone? He talks about the complexity of creation. And he talks about Behemoth and Leviathan, who are the ancient, ancient ways of, of symbolizing evil. He says, you guys, you don't know anything. I didn't consult you when I created the world. And if you think you can do a better job at taming Leviathan than I'm doing, then have at it, Job. And the bottom line is, look, you guys don't know anything. So how about we do a new thing here and everyone shuts up? That's wisdom. It's just a mess. Just say it's a mess and be there. In the midst of the mess, we've got to be willing to be quiet, acknowledging our ignorance, be loving, be humble, and ask God. The only real question worth asking in that is, God, how would you have me to respond to this mess? Which leads to my second point. In the face of tragedies, don't judge, just respond. When Pilate slaughters some people or when a tower falls on some people, Jesus is saying, don't judge, just respond. And in this case, since there's nothing you can do to respond to the folks that are dead, here's, something, here's the way you might respond. Let this be a reminder to you of how iffy and how chancy and how temporary life is. Uh, towers can fall on you at any minute. And so now is the time for you to take inventory, not of their lives, but take inventory of your life. Are you turned and walking in the kingdom? Just respond. You don't have to ask the question, why did these people in particular get killed by the tower as opposed to somebody else? And why did these people in particular get slaughtered by Pilate instead of somebody else? It's neither possible nor necessary to answer that question. The only thing that is necessary is to say, Lord, how should we respond to this mess? And when Jesus confronts a disabled woman, bent, uh, her back is bent over, he's saying, don't judge, just respond. Know that this isn't God doing this. This is a result of this world being afflicted by demonic powers. But trying to figure out why is she in particular afflicted with this back disorder as opposed to somebody else. Trying to figure out why is it that the enemy was able to get in there with her and not someone else. That's neither possible nor necessary to answer. Jesus never goes there. The only thing that's necessary is ask, how can you respond? And the way Jesus responds is by saying, don't ask those judging questions. Rather, bring healing to this lady's life. So also with the blind man. When confronting the blind man, don't judge, just respond. Trying to figure out why this person was born blind is neither possible nor necessary. You can know that if it wasn't for this world being under affliction, he wouldn't have been born blind. But why he was born blind, somebody else had nothing to do with his sin or his parents' sin. He could have been the most righteous guy in the world. It's got nothing to do with that. 
But figuring that stuff out is impossible. What's, what, what's necessary is to ask God, how would you have me respond? And the way Jesus responds is by saying, let God be glorified. And so it is with all tragedies and all afflictions. The only relevant question is to ask, God, this is a mess. How can you be glorified? How can you use this somehow to your advantage? Given that this mess is here, what purpose do you want to bring to this event? And how would you have me be used in bringing out that purpose? And this is true. And listen up on this one, because this is the hard one. This is true even when, and especially when, you yourself are to blame for the mess. And it may be that your life is a mess right now or someone else's life is a mess right now because of some stupid or maybe even evil decision that you made sometime in the past, whether recently or long ago. You now have to struggle with having a sexually transmitted infection because you slept around. Or now you're scarred because you had the abortion. Or your marriage got blown sky high because you had the affair. Or, or you're now serving life in prison because you killed a person. Or your child is dead because you feel at least that you were not paying enough attention or you weren't a responsible parent. And see, the devil would love to use that against you the rest of your life. What a tool he's got on you. Because in this case, you think you do know why the mess is there, and it's your fault. So you can live your life judging yourself, living in this impossible world of if only I had, if only this, if only that. Why did I do that? I'm so stupid. You can live in, 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 in frustration and in condemnation and regret the rest of your life. And then when anything else happens to you that is unfortunate, another tragedy, you will be just like McKinsey in the shack that we talked about last week. McKinsey, when, when a bad thing happens because you got this guilt in your head, boom, you are, you're sure that now God is judging you for the stupid thing or the evil thing that you did in your past. It may be, it may be that, in fact, what you did was stupid at best, maybe even uh, immoral, terrible, evil. And we shouldn't whitewash the past. There's, there's no purpose in that, trying to minimize it, make excuses for it. No, you don't own it. Own it. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Maybe it was, in fact, as bad as it looks. And embrace that. We have to minimize the past. Because on some level, you know it was as bad as it was. And if you try to minimize it, it's going to eat away at you. No, just acknowledge it. That, that it is what it is. But see, even here, and especially here, it's so, so important that we don't judge, we just respond. It's one thing to discern that something you did or a pattern that you had was stupid and maybe even terrible. That's discernment, and you learn from that. But judgment is something totally different. In judgment, we, we play like we are God, and we draw ongoing conclusions, not about a verb that we did, but about a noun that we are. And so because we slept around, we are a pervert. Or because we weren't responsible at one point in our life, we are a terrible parent. Or because we killed somebody, we are, I am a murderer. And we live in that identity. And if you're living in that identity, that's the story that you live in. And if that's the story you live in, your life will be devoid of joy, devoid of victory, full of regrets, full of condemnation. And that is no way for a kingdom person to live. Even when, and especially when, you yourself are responsible for the mess, it's so important that you don't judge, you just respond. Here's the mess. I did it. If you need to ask for forgiveness, then ask for forgiveness. It doesn't matter how the person responds. You ask for forgiveness. And having done that, get on with your life. 
Because God is not a God of the past. He's a God of the present. Life is in the present and God is the present and he wants you to be fully alive now. Amen. And if there's something you need to learn, and there probably is, you don't want to repeat your mistakes. If you need to learn, then learn. But learn it and get on with your life because life is always in the now and God is always in the now. And if you need to forgive yourself for what you did, then forgive yourself for what you did and get on with life. Look, if God forgives you for what you did and Calvary proves that he does, if God forgives you for what you did, who do you think you are for not forgiving yourself for what you did? You're acting like you're smarter than God, that you're a better judge than God. If God says you're forgiven, then you are forgiven. Receive it, live it, get on with your life. Live in the now, because life is in the now and God is in the now. It's always about getting in the present. And if there's natural consequences that are, are going to continue on because of this stupid or terrible thing that you did or pattern that you had, well, then that's just the way it is. That's, that's the ongoing mess. So you deal with it. You deal with it. Accept it and get on with your life. Uh, living with a sexually transmitted infection isn't the most wonderful thing in the world, but that's what's real. That's what's there. So the only thing that matters, no point in, in, in living in perpetual regret and condemnation over that. It happened. Learn from it, forgive, and move on. And now ask the question, God, how would you have me respond to this? How, Lord, would you uh, work this to somehow bring good out of this? He's a genius at doing that kind of stuff. And if your marriage was blown apart because of your affair, then your marriage was blown apart because of your affair. That's what it is. So, so you, you, you ask for forgiveness, you, you, you learn from it, you do what you need to do and get on with life. And you ask the question, God, now that this mess is here, how would you have me respond to this? Uh, how can I bring the kingdom and bring wholeness into this situation? How can you use me to further your kingdom purposes now that I'm single and, and in this situation? And if you're in prison, then you're in prison. If you kill the guy, you kill the guy. That is what it is. Accept it for being what it is. But that was past. That was then. This is now. God's always in the now. And so learn what you need to learn and, and, and get forgiven as you need to be forgiven. And having done that, get on with your life. And ask the question, okay, God, now that this is my home, how would you have me to use this opportunity? Because see, in the kingdom, every mess is an opportunity for something beautiful and kingdom-like to come out of it. And I'm thinking, I'm just thinking, I'm suspecting that in prison, while maybe not isn't the ideal hotel you'd like to be in, uh, there's a population there that some of them at least will probably need Jesus Christ. So you are now the missionary to the prison. God bless you. Go to it. Get on with your life. You can be used in the kingdom. Because the bottom line is this. If you've got a sexually transmitted infection or you're divorced, you're, mur you're a murderer, you're, you're in prison, you lost a child, you had an abortion or 10,000 other screw-ups and terrible things that could have happened to you and it is your fault, it doesn't affect one iota God's passionate, passionate love for you, and it doesn't affect one iota how God can use you to further his kingdom. It maybe changes the way he's going to use you, but the way he's going to use you now isn't worse than the way he was going to use you then. It's just different. And so always be asking the question, not judging yourself or not going into the impossible questions of who's to blame and all that sort of stuff. Just say, God, how can you be glorified? Let God be glorified in prison. Let God be glorified in my divorce. Let God be glorified uh, in the fact that I, I have gone through this past experience. Let God be glorified in the wounds that I carry with me because of things that have been done in the past. Even with your self-inflicted messes, especially with your self-inflicted messes, don't judge. Just respond. Forgive, learn, and get on with life. Ask God, how would you have me to respond? And this leads to my third point. God's response is always about healing. Never about condemnation. It's about healing. How can we grow out of this? 
when Jesus confronts the disabled woman and the blind man and a hundred other people in the Gospels, he brings healing into their life because God's heart is about wholeness. We were created to be whole. That was God's ideal. We were created to be whole in our, in our mind and in our body and in our spirit and in all of our relationships. God wants our mind and our body and our spirit and all of our relationships and ultimately all of society to reflect his beauty and reflect his love, to reflect his health. That's why we're created, to be mirrors of God's glory. All infirmities, whether they're mental, the lies that you believe and the emotions that torment you, or whether it's physical, the infirmities that you have, the disease, the disabilities, or whether it's spiritual, the ongoing chronic doubt or despair that you have, all of that is ultimately because the world is broken. It's because we are in bondage to the principalities and powers. And all broken relationships and families and, and among neighbors and in churches and in the broader world, all of that is a result of this world being under demonic oppression. All the wars and all the judgments between races and all the judgments between socioeconomic classes and genders, all of that is a result of the principalities and powers playing us off against one another like pawns. But see, God's desire remains to bring wholeness and healing into our lives individually and relationally to manifest what the world is supposed to look like, what we're supposed to look like, what families are supposed to look like, what society is supposed to look like. And in doing that, we put on display the glory of God, the beauty of God, the kingdom of God, over and against everything in this world that, is, that, that, that disagrees with that, over and against the kingdom of darkness that holds this world in oppression. Jesus came to liberate us from this demonic oppression to walk in God's kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. To liberate us in every possible way. And insofar as the wholeness of God's original design is manifested in our bodies and in our minds, in our spirits, and in all of our relationships, God reigns. That's the reign of God. Wherever Satan doesn't reign, that's where God is reigning. Now, we live in this war zone world. We still do. The, the, Jesus came, planted the mustard seed, and it's growing, but we still live in this war zone world. And so, our bodies continue to decay. You may have noticed that. If you're over 30, I'm sure you're beginning to notice it. Wait till you get to be 50. Yeah, you, you decay, and eventually, if the Lord doesn't come back, you're going to die. And our minds start to decay. You may have noticed that one too. It's just the way it is. Our spirits get afflicted. Uh, our relationships, we live in this demonic war zone, and so relationships are difficult, even in the kingdom. There's no magic bullet here. Uh, you know, marriages are still difficult in the kingdom. You may have noticed that. Uh, relationships with the kids are still difficult, even though you're in the kingdom. With neighbors and churches and the broader society, we live in this demonic war zone. It continues on. So the, the kingdom is always pushing up against that. But God calls on us in the midst of this demonic war zone. He calls on us to partner with him to reverse that as much as possible to manifest the glory of God here and now as much as possible, to put on display here and now what the whole creation will look like in the future. That's why the Bible calls us first fruits. We're the first pickings. We're to put on display the wholeness and the beauty and the victory of God in a world that doesn't yet acknowledge that. And so we pray for healing physically, mentally, spiritually, and relationally, not just for our own sake, but yes, for our, our sake, but even more for the glory of God that God may shine in all of his beauty and of all of his love. God wants us whole. That's the bottom line. Now, why does it happen sometimes and not others? Why is this person healed, not that person? Why does this person have that affliction? Well, we're back to the unfathomably complex, 
unanswerable, impossible question that is completely unnecessary to even ask. Don't even go there. The only thing that's worth asking is, how can we respond? And the response is always about bringing God's love, character, and power to this mess to bring wholeness out of it and healing out of it and deliverance out of it. And that's what I want us to do here in the next half hour. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up here. We'll first have an offering and worship God by taking up an offering. And, and during that time, I want you to be praying the question, Lord, what am I supposed to respond to in my life? What is broken? And then we're going to make available the opportunity for you to enter into prayer with our prayer team around the auditorium. And I'll say more about that in a little bit. But right now, I just want you to be living the question, how can God be glorified in my life by mending what is broken physically, mentally, spiritually, and relationally? Father, we're calling on you to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, in Woodland Hills as it is in heaven. Even now, start invading this place, preparing our hearts to step out in faith and boldness to receive your kingdom, that you might be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. glorifying yourself. Keep doing your work. The band will continue to worship and uh, lead in worship. And if you want to stay and worship, stay. If you want to stay and pray, pray. If you want to come forward for prayer, the prayer teams will be up here as long as there are people who have needs. Uh, when you feel it's time to leave, leave. If you have children in the children's area and yet you feel called to stay, I, I'd encourage, I want to ask you to get your kids first, but then come back. This is a great environment for them to be in. 
And so just bring them back here. And I leave us with just the commission to be people who, in our own life, in the life of our neighborhoods, all around us, there's messes. And don't judge a thing. Don't judge a thing. Just respond in healing and being, seeing God glorified and empower. Lord, help us to be people who don't make messes, but we don't try to clean them up either. We just love them and respond and be glorified, Lord, in our life and through our life. Be glorified. And continue your healing work here in Jesus' name. Amen.